For much of human history, the brain wasn't perceived to be an organ of any particular importance. That said, as far back as the 17th century BC, the Egyptians did seem to understand the consequences of injuries to the brain, which required they develop a hieroglyph for the brain as a separate piece of the human body, which is more than can be said for most other cultures of that period, or even those that came into being even hundreds of years later. But the so-called Edwin Smith Surgical Papyrus, an Egyptian medical text that was written on papyrus and named after the antiquities dealer who acquired it in the mid-19th century AD, went above and beyond simply calling out the brain as a chunk of something significant, worthy of a hieroglyph. It also described what happened to two patients who had been wounded on the field of battle, suffering trauma to their heads. Both patients experienced aphasia and seizures, and the document went on to describe the, quote, pulsations of the exposed brain, end quote, comparing their rippling surfaces to that of copper slag, the waste byproduct of smelting copper, which has brain-like crenellations. This text was amazing for both the details and because of the time in which it was written, because in that era, and for a long time afterward, most medical knowledge was based on little more than myth and legend, old wives' tales. People did things because they believed these actions would cause the gods to intercede on their behalf, generally not because they had a tested, physical reason to believe it would have any effect. The empirical process demonstrated on this papyrus, however, and the logical conclusions presented by the author that trauma to the brain caused these symptoms was unprecedented in the field of neuroscience and may, in some ways, have been one of the founding texts of neuroscience, the study of the brain, because all of these discoveries seemed to be completely novel at the time, real fringe scientific concepts. Now fast forward 10,000 years and zoom over a little bit to Greece, and you'll find a man named Pythagorean Alcman of Croton, who believed that, quote, the seat of sensations is in the brain. This contains the governing faculty. All the senses are connected in some way with the brain. Consequently, they are incapable of action if the brain is disturbed. The power of the brain to synthesize sensations makes it also the seat of thought. The storing up of perceptions gives memory and belief, and when these are stabilized, you get knowledge. End quote. This was a fairly remarkable conclusion to draw at the time, as the Greeks of his period did not practice dissection, believing the human body to be sacred. As a result, there were very few anatomical models from which to derive knowledge about the human body, and no tradition of furthering research by dissecting cadavers. A few thousand years later, in the 4th century BC, Hippocrates agreed with Alcman that the brain was the central hub of thinking in the human body. But a contemporary of his, Aristotle, believed that the heart was where intelligence resided, and that the brain was merely a cooling mechanism for the blood. Humans, by his thinking, were more logical than beasts in the wild, because our brains helped us cool our blood, which made us less savage. Around that same time, but again back in Egypt, Herophilus of Chalcedon, 
and Erisistratus of Seos were gleefully pulling human bodies apart, as their culture and religion did not prevent them from doing so, and in fact encouraged them to dissemble and embalm their dead. This presented them with many anatomical opportunities that the Greeks did not have, and they made good use of those opportunities. In the 3rd century BC, the Egyptians had already distinguished the cerebrum and the cerebellum in the brain, along with the ventricles, which is the system of brain canals where cerebrospinal fluid is produced. Unfortunately, although the two aforementioned Egyptian medical professionals were able to do some fairly remarkable things during this time period, like experiment on live brains during a time in which they were still writing on papyrus, most of their work was lost, and we only really know about them through secondary sources, meaning that a great deal of what we now know they discovered at that time had to be rediscovered later by their own culture and by many other cultures. And in some cases, some of this knowledge was only rediscovered a thousand years later, which is kind of a bummer. Galen, a Greek anatomist who lived during the rule of the Romans, theorized that the brain moved animal spirits through the ventricles, which is what allowed the brain to function. Around 1000 AD, al-Zarawi, who lived in Islamic Iberia, performed surgeries for head injuries and skull fractures and spinal injuries and numerous other very complex brain-related issues. And around the same time in Persia, Avicenna, an Islamic polymath, produced works that detailed treatments for skull fractures and related surgeries. Knowledge of the brain, or at the very least research into the brain, as there were a lot of false starts and blind paths taken during the process of understanding about this particular organ, really began to take off during the European Renaissance. Because this was a period in which rationality was celebrated and knowledge was documented in a more permanent fashion, a great deal more hands-on anatomical work was done, and illustrations were made and knowledge was shared. René Descartes, who studied the physical brain, also proposed the theory of dualism, which at its most basic level essentially posits that the physical brain and the mind are two separate things. New distinct portions of the brain were identified and named in this time, and adjacent in vital connective structures like the brainstem and the nervous system, were explored and mapped and theorized about. Beginning in the 18th century, with the comprehension of electricity, humanity began to understand the role of energy in the brain, as it interacts with the physical structure of the organ and the rest of the body. Microscopes furthered this process of understanding, resulting in the identification and naming of neurons, among many other pieces, and a bit later in understanding that different portions of the brain were responsible for certain bodily functions, something that had been theorized before, but which could now be tested and proven. Modern neuroscience is interesting in that we know vastly more than ever before, and we have magnitudes more data to work with today than we did back then. But at the same time, we're also vastly more aware of how little we actually know compared to how much there is to learn. What once seemed like merely a physical cell-based problem to solve has become something a lot more deep and dense. The brain has been called the most complicated object in the known universe. And that may be hyperbole, but it does seem that the more we learn about the brain, the more amazing and complex it seems. 
Like all biological structures, it shows hints of flubs and flaws related to its evolution over time, but its immense complexity also demonstrates the crazy amount of innovation that can take place within slow, steady, iterative processes when those processes take place over the course of billions of years. What I want to talk about today is the brain, but more specifically, I want to talk about how we talk about the brain and what the way we describe and understand it means for how we perceive ourselves and how we understand the world. The article I want to start from today comes from Gizmodo, and it's entitled, The Body is Not a Computer. Stop Thinking of It as One. And this article talks a bit about something that Facebook announced recently, namely that they intend to explore and go to market with a brain-computer interface, or perhaps several different brain-computer interfaces. And perhaps most immediately relevant to that statement, what is a brain-computer interface? Fundamentally, a brain-computer interface is a type of device that allows a user to bypass the keyboard and mouse and touchscreen interfaces that most of us use today, allowing us to type, for instance, by thinking about words or letters, and allowing us to interact with objects on a screen by looking at those objects and then thinking in a certain way. That's how the current batch built to work with our existing tech infrastructure would likely work anyway. Now, this isn't as science fiction-ish as it might sound, Devices of this kind already exist, and though they're currently relatively slow and cumbersome and very imperfect compared to keyboards and mice and touchscreens, the fastest typing on a brain-based interface at the moment that I'm recording this is only eight words per minute, but they're also quite new and are likely using techniques that will eventually discard in favor of other more effective and efficient techniques. Old keyboards and mice were not great either, and it took a fairly steep learning curve to learn to use them well. There's plenty of reason to believe that the same might apply here, that these technologies will get better over time and we will get better at using them as well. I was able to use a simple version of one of these devices many years ago when I was living in Iceland, and a local company let me try out an app that they'd built for the iPhone which was paired with a simple sensor-embedded headband. And this headband measured certain brain waves that could be detected through sensor contact with your forehead. And as such, if you could alter those brain waves by thinking in a certain way, you could make things happen on the screen. So if you could calm your brain, which would then result in changes to your brain waves, different things would happen within that app. And in one of the games built into the app, Calming your brainwaves would summon rain clouds to come put out a fire in a burning building that was animated within the game. Now, as I understand it, this technology is far from perfect, and there's even speculation about how useful it actually is in terms of training one's brain in the first place. If you were trying to use one of these apps to calm your brainwaves, there's still debate about the value of being able to do that in terms of it actually impacting your mood or your level of calmness and things like that. And the interface itself, that headband, is highly inaccurate. And the only way to get a really solid, accurate read on a brain and the 
output of that brain is to either open it up, to open up the skull and attach one of several different measuring devices to the brain directly, or to shave one's head and attach a series of sensors around the scalp, each of those sensors lubricated with a type of gel that increases conductivity. So it's unlikely that any app that requires you to crack open your skull and undergo invasive brain surgery will do very well on the consumer market. And the same is true, though, to a less gruesome degree of an app that requires users to shave their heads and carry around tubes of conductive gel, in addition to all the scalp-based sensors and other hardware. So the headbands, though wildly imperfect, are at the moment the closest thing I have seen to a consumer-friendly example of this technology. Now, other somewhat similar but more specialized examples that use different techniques have been used by people who have lost manual dexterity or have become paralyzed in some way. The interface used by Dr. Stephen Hawking is a good example of this, but such interfaces are generally quite far afield from anything directly brain-related and often rely on either the tracking of eye movement or other sometimes far more obscure and customized input methods. These are not interfaces that are directly brain-controlled. Dr. Hawking's interface, for instance, was custom-built by Intel, and its cobbled-together nature is described as such on his website. Quote, A tablet computer mounted on the arm of my wheelchair is powered by my wheelchair batteries, although the tablet's internal battery will keep the computer running if necessary. My main interface to the computer is through an open-source program called ACAT, written by Intel, This provides a software keyboard on the screen. A cursor automatically scans across this keyboard by row or by column. I can select a character by moving my cheek to stop the cursor. My cheek movement is detected by an infrared switch that is mounted on my spectacles. This switch is my only interface with the computer. ACAT includes a word prediction algorithm provided by SwiftKey, trained on my books and lectures. So I usually only have to type the first couple of characters before I can select the whole word. When I have built up a sentence, I can send it to my speech synthesizer. I use a separate hardware synthesizer made by Speech Plus. It is the best I have heard, although it gives me an accent that has been described variously as Scandinavian, American, or Scottish. End quote. Again, this is clearly not a method that would make much sense for most people. It is amazing that it's feasible for someone with Hawking's condition, ALS, which is a progressive neurodegenerative disease that essentially robs a body's muscles of nourishment, leading the body to atrophy, which in turn leads to the scarring and then the hardening of many important muscular regions. Dr. Hawking would be unable to move or speak, lacking his motorized wheelchair and digital interface. So these developments, as clunky and Rube Goldberg-esque as they can seem, are actually splendid for him and to those who benefit from his work. And of course, other people who have similar conditions or other debilitating conditions are probably not too picky when it comes to these interfaces. The fact that they can use them, that they're available to begin with, is amazing and a wonder of modern technology. But there are, of course, very different concerns for consumer-grade technologies for the masses. And so this is not the kind of solution, very likely at least, that Facebook is after. They want to improve the connectivity between us, the Vox Populi, and our online networks. And note that I didn't say 
increase the connectivity between us and our devices. The devices, our smartphones and our computers, are today's interfaces between us and these disembodied networks. If Facebook is successful in creating brain-computer interfaces, the result might be a world with far fewer devices that we keep in our pockets or sit in front of all day, because we'll all be more directly linked, and these networks could become a passive part of our sensory input and output, rather than something that is divided from us through space, through hardware, that is a perceptually separate device. It could be something that we don't need a separate device to access and interact with at all, because this brain-computer interface would keep us plugged in and allow us to browse and chat and create and consume just by thinking in a certain way. Which, I recognize, still might seem a little vague to anyone who isn't super up-to-date on happenings within the tech world, or this particular facet of the tech world, or who isn't particularly well-read when it comes to science fiction. So let's take a look at another similar project that's currently in the works that seems to be moderately more specific in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and what that might look like. This particular project was started by real-life science fiction character Elon Musk. Now, Musk is fairly famous for his past and current projects, which include the e-commerce platform, PayPal, the electric car and power storage company, Tesla, the private space flight firm SpaceX, the renewable energy company SolarCity, the high-speed reduced-pressure tube transportation system Hyperloop, a relatively recent ambition to drill tunnels underneath Los Angeles to reduce traffic congestion, which is called The Boring Company, and his newly announced project, Neuralink, through which he aims to integrate the human brain with artificial intelligence. This Neuralink project is similar to Facebook's ambitions in some ways, but also different in that it's far more ambitious in utility, but at least at first, I would guess, less ambitious in the scope of public participation. Musk envisions implanting devices in people's brains that would allow them to neurally interface with software with artificial intelligence-based tools that we could then access and utilize just by thinking in a certain way. And presumably, at first, at least, this would mean far fewer people using such a tool than the number that would use something less invasive, something that doesn't require implanting something in your brain. More people, presumably, again, would be likely to use an external device, like what Facebook seems to be planning. But an implant would also allow for much better connectivity between the brain and the technology, allowing for better bandwidth and utility of whatever tools the user suddenly has access to. This is not a new concept, by the way. I've mentioned more than once on this show the Culture series of books, which were written by Ian M. Banks. And this is one of my favorite works of science fiction. It does a great job of addressing a whole lot of different topics that we are currently addressing in theory. It shows what those things might actually look like in practice. And it's also a favorite of Elon Musk's, the robot ships that serve as platforms for his SpaceX reusable rockets are named after ships in the culture series. And the Neuralink concept is said to take some inspiration from the neural lace, a device 
of sorts, used by far future post-scarcity humans in the culture series. And it's a type of device that could conceivably get around, or at least lessen some of the cringeworthiness of some of the issues that we have with current implantable technologies. When most of us picture implantable hardware, things that mad scientists might want to install in a human body, or even how certain current medical devices of the more mundane sort look like pacemakers, we usually picture something like a computer or a smartphone, some type of machine that looks like a machine, something that you would look at and say, okay, that's a machine, even though the intention is to put that machine within a human body. A neural lace, though, is more like an injectable collection of microscopic wires that could be injected into the brain without having to open you up surgically, and which would then automatically spread throughout your brain, each wire finding the correct spot to attach itself, which as a result would then plug relevant portions of your brain into other technologies wirelessly. So these wires would be injected and then they would integrate with your brain and they would look something like veins of technology weaving throughout the organ. But instead of distributing blood, they would transmit data between your gray matter and software. So the result would be, in a way, similar to connecting your computer to the internet. If you have just a computer and no internet, you've got all this hardware still useful but operating in isolation. It is able to run its own software and able to do things within that space that it has available, but it's disconnected from the larger world, from any other network outside of its own, the network between its own isolated components. But then if you connect that hardware to a global network, to the internet, then really interesting things start to happen. Interesting opportunities open up. And the modern world, in many ways, is predicated on what happened when we started plugging our computers and other devices into this larger network of computers and other devices. So much happened that we could not have predicted based on what we'd experienced in a world where computers operated in isolation. The entire game changed. Musk and others working in this field have said that these neural lace-like technologies would grant us telepathy because we'd suddenly be able to communicate with each other, brain to brain. We could conceivably expand our memories, store an image of whatever it is we're looking at, simply by thinking in the right way, which would then cause the implant to commit that collection of chemical signals and electrical impulses as data on an interface that knows how to read those sorts of data. The connections made by this neural lace would mean we could save our memories to the cloud, could conceivably infinitely expand our processing capabilities, and could simply know things just by thinking a question, by asking that network for data. It would be like our brain is suddenly made up of this entire network of brains, and all of us would then be super powerful neurally by comparison to somebody who has a brain operating in isolation, just as the same was true with computers, compared to computers connected to the internet. There would, of course, be just as many new concerns as a result of this technology as there would be benefits, above and beyond the ethical concerns and the concerns of philosophy, of what it is to be human, of what it is to have privacy, to be isolated, 
the many different aspects of our culture that are predicated on being individuals and having a very hard, thick line drawn between individuals, those things would suddenly be called into question, and the lines between us would become a whole lot softer and more permeable. Even beyond that, just as the internet opened up our computers to attack from outside parties, wiring our brains in this way could open our brains and bodies up for the same type of attack. We might be able to download a muscle memory trainer that would teach us kung fu. But if we were capable of that, a hacker might also be capable of using the same technology and capability to hijack our muscles to make us kill someone. There's a lot of potential for this type of technology, but that potential goes both ways. But I want to step back from that line of thinking for a moment and address something that I just did to explain what a neural lace does. I analogized the brain as a computer, as hardware, as a computer that runs its own internal software, which could be plugged in to a network of other brains, of other computer-like devices. Because describing it in this way, I think, makes it easier to understand why plugging a brain into another piece of hardware is not just doable, but also potentially quite valuable. Seeing ourselves as devices just waiting to be connected to the internet and into each other, in a way, allows us to see the potential utility of wiring ourselves up in this way. Even if we can't imagine all the positive and negative changes that might occur as a result from where we stand, we can imagine through that analogy because of all the changes that happened as a result of computers being networked. But this analogy is not perfect. It's not even necessarily valuable, but it's incredibly common, and it influences the way we think about both technological development and human perception and growth, about the evolution of technology and of humanity. The article that I started with, that I started unspooling a few minutes ago, was entitled, The Body is Not a Computer, Stop Thinking of It as One. There was a recent article in Aeon Magazine that agrees. It's entitled, The Empty Brain, with the subtitle, Your Brain Does Not Process Information, Retrieve Knowledge, or Store Memories. In short, your brain is not a computer. The argument being made in both of these articles is that the way we analogize the brain is helpful for a fundamental understanding of broad concepts the creation and storage of memories, the intake and conversion of information into data. But it's also quite flawed in that it gives us a false understanding of those processes that only works in the broad strokes. And it's an understanding that does not tend to agree with the specifics about how our brains actually work. A knife and a sufficiently powerful laser can both slice through a loaf of bread cutting neat slices. In this way, a knife and a sufficiently powerful laser are similar. But to assume that you understand a laser because you understand a knife would be ridiculous. These are very different things that happen to have something in common with similar end results in a very specific use case. So too is the analogy of a human brain and a computer, according to these and similar articles. They align at some very few places. But to assume that we understand one because we understand the other, based on that very transient alignment, would be ridiculous. Now that said, there are some who continue to argue 
and with some solid points made in their favor, that brains are, in fact, computers, or at least the analogies that we use today, basing these comparisons on today's computers, as powerful and different as they are from old school computers, are actually relatively accurate and useful as analogies compared to those that we used in the past in prior decades. And the points for which they don't line up yet are seldom relevant for the conversations that we are having. And so the places where the brain and the computer analogy falls apart are not relevant to the conversations that we are having when we tend to use these analogies, is the argument. There was an editorial in the New York Times in 2015 by a professor of psychology and neuroscience named Gary Marcus, entitled, Face It, Your Brain is a Computer, in which he argues that although they are obviously not direct copies or stand-ins for our brains, modern computers and brains do have a whole lot in common, and many of the arguments that they don't are simply agonizing over details that are of little practical consequence. Are there differences between brains and computers? Yes. Are they more relevant than the differences between different brands of computer hardware that we use today and have used in the past? Not really. And as such, this and other similar pieces claim that the analogy of the brain and the computer is a useful one in the same way that being able to compare computers of different brands can be useful in talking about those computers. There's a philosophical theory called the computational theory of mind that says the human mind, or brain, or both, are information processing systems akin to computing. This theory was coined in the 1960s and refined through the 1980s and is in many ways like the concept of Descartes' dualism, in that it's merely one theory of many about a particular aspect of the brain and the mind, but a whole lot of people outside of the philosophical and neurological worlds by default assume these theories to be the absolute truth. And this default assumption tends to be because of how we are taught about the brain, because of the analogies that we commonly use in discussing it, and all kinds of passive seemingly meaningless and harmless tendencies of that nature. But the computational theory of mind is just one theory of many. And though it has a great deal of popular support due to its intelligibility by a large number of people, it's in no way something that should be taken for granted. And it may even be harmful to propagate. Because the impression that we understand something that we do not can cause us to make decisions based on that assumed understanding and in turn can make us think that we know with actionable certitude more than we actually know. Because we've come up with compelling analogies, but not actual, complete understandings. There's a term I came across the other day that I find to be useful in understanding one of the potential downsides of embracing and utilizing incomplete analogies over full, if less comprehensible, explanations about something complex. The term is engineer's disease, and I came across it in reference to a man named Scott Adams, who is probably best known for his Dilbert comic strip, but who recently seemed to decide to rebrand himself as a speaker of truth in the Trumpian sense of the phrase, someone who isn't into being politically correct and who stands at an awkward and uncommon place between political and philosophical ideologies 
and who seems, in some ways, to kind of get off on offending people. I don't honestly have much of an opinion about him and what he's been saying of late, and that's not particularly relevant to this topic in any case. But what is relevant is that he kicked off this rebranding effort by tweeting something that pissed off some people, but rallied a whole lot of other people to his flag. And this was back in July of 2016, during the presidential campaign, when Trump was taking a lot of flack for being inexperienced in politics and military action and governing and pretty much everything else. In response to these criticisms about Trump's authority in these different realms of expertise, Adams defended Trump's ignorance, tweeting this, quote, if experience is necessary for being president, name a political topic I can't master in one hour under the tutelage of top experts, end quote. Through some lenses, this is a perfectly logical statement, maybe a bit hyperbolic, but still logical. I mean, look at all the tools that we have access to today in the modern world. Look at the systems that we're capable of developing, including those meant to fill our brains with new knowledge. The brazenness of this statement didn't hurt his cause. This is a thought, I think, that has occurred to many people over the years, and it's especially prevalent, I would guess, in people who are quite tech-savvy. It's an appealing idea to those who are most aware of these tools that we have available, and those who are prone to what's often called the hacker mindset. The idea that you can move fast and break things and iterate and fail and keep going and eventually outsmart the established players in any field by working smarter and not harder and disrupting the slow dinosaur-esque antiquated establishment players because you figured out a way to do things smarter rather than in the traditional way. And this, in short, is the mantra of the tech set of Silicon Valley of device-empowered entrepreneurs who see disruption is not just desirable, but something that they're maybe even compelled in some way to accomplish. They tend to see troubled industries, any industry, as things that they personally could break down into pieces and analyze and optimize and rebuild anew into something fresh, into something more efficient and effective, into something better. If you look around the modern world, it's easy to understand why this is such a pervasive way of thinking. The modern Western monomyth is the story of an innovator who would not take no for an answer, someone who felt they were drowning in bureaucracy or outdated rules and regulations, and who decided to break those rules, damn the consequences, who decided to test out a theory and build something without knowing that it would work, someone who jumped off a cliff and built themselves a hang glider on the way down. This is, arguably, a big part of why we do have such nifty devices and such useful networks and an unending selection of new tools and entertainments and novelties today. But there's a downside to this way of seeing the world. In many cases, old business models and mechanisms can be broken apart and analyzed and rebuilt better using data-crunching technologies that we have at our disposal. But sometimes the end results are less than optimal, at least for most humans because the metrics that we're using to do that deconstruction and rebuilding are not made for most humans. And part of the problem here is what's often called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a cognitive bias that says, in short, that those with low ability or low knowledge 
about a particular subject or within a particular field often suffer from the illusion of personal superiority about that subject or within that field. Someone who only sees politics from a distance will be more likely to view politics as easy and something that they personally could easily fix because they don't know enough to know how little they know. Adam's statement then was greeted with a great deal of derision by people who saw his claim as a massive demonstration of ignorance by someone suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. He made such claims for himself and for Trump because he was so ignorant that he didn't even realize how ignorant he was. But another part of this problem of believing that everything can be taken apart and shaken out and put back together in a more streamlined and optimized fashion is found in the so-called pickup community. Now, this is a group of people, mostly young men, but not exclusively, who attempt to take apart social interactions, particularly those related to dating and picking up those they're interested in. They are trying to optimize dating in a lot of cases. Now, as anyone who has ever met a pickup artist, which is what they call themselves, can tell you, and and I've met several of them over the years, the results of this quote-unquote optimization are usually less than optimal. In the field of robotics, the space between robots that are so fake they're cute and robots that are so real that they are convincing as a human being is called the uncanny valley. It's an unfortunate space between the extremes on the believability scale in which the robots are creepy as hell despite their best attempts at realism. They're not fake enough to be cute, but they're not real enough to be convincing. And the effort to be convincing then comes across as incredibly bizarre and off-putting. Most pickup artists, in my experience, come across the same way. They fall squarely within the uncanny valley of human interaction, because in attempting to take apart those interactions and put them back together better, they've created for themselves a weird sort of almost real but something's wrong here vibe. Those interactions lack something legitimate feeling and authentic and actually engaging, because all that they have replicated are a lot of the outward gestures and intonations of flirting, some of the broad indicators of sociability and friendliness. But somewhere along the way, they have failed to take into account the proper metrics. They're measuring the wrong things, and as such, they're rebuilding for the wrong things. Something important was left on the cutting room floor when they were going through the process of optimizing and the experience of interacting with them as a consequence ends up feeling really hollow and superficial, and often more than a little creepy to anyone who is not a fellow pickup artist and who, and who therefore sees the world in the same way, missing that vital something that makes interactions not creepy. The problem they're running into is that human interaction is not easily quantified. Some of the important aspects of social interactions have no doubt been identified and measured to some degree, but attempts to replicate and improve upon them generally fail in the same way that building a human-like robot that seems to do all the same things a real human does, but which fails to breathe or blink with the proper rhythm might wig out anyone who interacts with it. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what's going wrong here, but you can subconsciously tell that all is not right with this thing that you're standing in front of. Now, all that said, a counter-argument to this is that anything can be quantified. 
but we may just not have the proper metrics for it yet. And this is a compelling argument to me, frankly. I tend to think that we may someday be able to quantify all of physical reality. And with sufficient computing power and data and the proper observations, measurement tools, we should be able to track the flapping of a butterfly's wings along with a whole lot of other relevant environmental data and be able to predict the development of a typhoon as a result on the other side of the planet. So my bias here is toward an empiricism-based structuralism of a sort, meaning that I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility for even those who want to optimize social interactions to achieve that someday. Though, like the butterfly and typhoon tracking systems, I also think that we are nowhere near that point today, if it is in fact possible at all. But regardless of lacking these tools in a lot of cases, or even in some cases the measurements, the metrics that we would need to use those tools correctly, we invest a great deal of time and energy, not to mention trust, in people and companies who claim to have these capabilities, who claim to be able to deconstruct and optimize anything, even if they in reality lack those abilities or lack the completeness of ability that might be necessary for consistent and accurate practical use of such data. Analogies are useful in allowing us to understand things that might otherwise be too complex or foreign to fully grok. I use the analog of a web when thinking about learning, of attaching different pieces of information to other pieces of information, and memory being a process of following these strands of the web to reach the right bundle of interconnected concepts when I need to recall something. This is not a perfect explanation of how memory works or how information is stored. It's similar, in some ways, to some modern theories of memory, but it's also way, way off in other ways. But regardless, it is an analogy that helps me understand something about memory and learning and how the brain stores and retrieves information. And it helps me then add other pieces to that analogy as I learn more things, when I learn which chemicals perform which tasks in the brain, and which brain pieces serve as the links between information. This is new data that is then snapped into place within this existing framework that I use, and I'm more capable then of fleshing out my mental model of what a mental model looks like, because I have that structure that is very intelligible to me to start with. Where this breaks down, though, is on the more complex, detailed level. Brains are like computers in some ways, but not at all like computers in other ways. When some new piece of information comes along, something vital to our understanding of the brain, we may find ourselves at a disadvantage in learning that information. It may not fit with the computer analogy. It may not snap into place cleanly, so we might forget it or ignore it as inconvenient or deny it because it feels wrong, because our understanding of the brain does not allow for that type of new information. This is part of what happens when we try to engineer everything, breaking things down and systematizing them for optimization. The analogies and metrics that we use, the pieces we break them into, seem to allow us to do marvelous things within certain spaces. But when some new reality comes knocking, or some weakness needs to be addressed, we sometimes ignore these things completely because they don't align with our existing analogy, with the stories we tell ourselves to understand something. Engineer's disease, then, the belief 
that all things are hackable and take apartable and optimizable might cause some people to misunderstand a great many things in their lives. Hack your computer, hack your brain, hack your love life, hack your health, hack your ability to hack. There are no doubt benefits to pulling apart your workout plan and figuring out how you might do it better, how you might achieve more gains in less time. But at a certain point, that hacking analogy might cease to be valuable and even become harmful or limiting. People are not machines like computers are machines. It's possible to hack something, to optimize it, in accordance with one set of standards, only to find that it has been completely crippled by another set of standards. It's possible to strengthen some aspects of your life or work, only to cause others to atrophy as a consequence. Not all problems are engineering problems, and not all analogies are helpful. If we can keep this in mind, we should be able to use these analogies as long as they're useful, discarding them for something better when appropriate, while also avoiding the most obvious instances of Dunning-Kruger, recognizing our capacity to improve things and ourselves, while also understanding how blind we can sometimes become in the pursuit of better. Might I suggest Nexus by Ramez Nam? Nexus is the first book of a trilogy in its very near future speculative fiction, and it's very topical for today's episode. Essentially, the series follows a group of people, government people and hacker people and adjacent people, who are involved in the dissemination of a new party drug. But what this drug does, essentially, is installs a neural lace in the user. And so you're able to then adjust your experience of the world and have drug-like effects, but you do it through kind of a mental operating system. And the people involved, some of them are government people trying to deal with the fallout of suddenly having all of these pros and cons that I mentioned during the episode of a interconnected telepathic citizenry and people misusing these new abilities, but also using them to great effect positively. And then the people on the other side of things too, the people who developed this and the people who are trying to misuse it. It's a very compelling storyline. There are some great characters. The speculation about what would happen in the aftermath of such a development is really, really fascinating. Uh, And it's written by an author who is just a very clever, intelligent, and well-informed person. So if you get the chance, if you're looking for something interesting to read and you want to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, to see how that would actually play out in real life, consider grabbing a copy of Nexus by Ramez Nam. You can find out more about me and my work, including a complete list of the books that I've written at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. And while you're there, consider signing up for the free Let's Know Things newsletter, which is really just a collection of links to interesting things that goes out every Monday. You can follow me or say hello on pretty much every social network at Colin is my name. You can find my blog at XLLifestyle.com. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.